So let's read together in Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm going to be reading from New King James Version. This is starting in verse 10. Verse 10, Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to this end with all, the pers- with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, and that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Let me pray for our time. Lord God, just thank you so much for this word that you've given us to study and to understand, Father. I thank you that this word is from you and not from me and not from men. It is from your Holy Spirit, God, and I pray that you would, in your spirit, give us wisdom and discernment to know what you are speaking, that you would open our hearts. God, that you would speak just now through me, that it would not be me, not be my wisdom, God. Speak in spite of me if necessary. Lord, just that you would share what you have to share, that your message would be known today. Thank you for every person in this room, God. We thank you for who you are. We love you. Praise your name. Amen. Okay, so the art of spiritual war. Um, So as we engage in warfare, right, spiritual warfare, which is something that is going on around us at all times, right, I really see there's two ways, two things that need to be done. There's two facets, aspects of this. One is preparation, and then there's the battle itself, right? You would never go into a battle unprepared. You would never be sent to, to a war without first being trained in body, in mind, with, with the gear, with all that you need. And then after you do that time of preparation and that time of getting ready, you go into the battle, right? You wouldn't just prepare and then do nothing, right? So there's two aspects to this. There's preparation, there's battle. Two are, are both important and both are needed. And when we talk about preparation, there's some changes that we have to make. All right, when God, as God starts to prepare us and starts to work in us, he's, he's going to start changing some things. And I think the first thing that he's going to change is our perspective. It's the way that we look and view the world, like what's going on around us and how we see things. It's our worldview. So he talks about changes of perspective. And this really starts in verse 10, where he says, Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. All right? The quickest way that you're going to lose a battle is to know, never realize that you're in one in the first place. All right, and I think that today, especially in our churches, there's, there are many Christians out there that are not even aware of the spiritual battles going on, or if they are aware, it's sort of in the back of the mind, right? It's something we don't really want to talk about. It's something that um, we tend to maybe ignore a little bit sometimes. You know, we don't want to think about that. And um, They say there's an old saying, and I don't know who first said it, but the greatest victory that the enemy ever won, that the devil ever won for, for himself, was to make people think that he didn't exist. Right? The greatest thing he ever was able to achieve was to think that, yeah, I'm not here, 
I'm not doing anything. There's nothing. There's nothing spiritual going around you. There's nothing, no war, no, no anything. You know, it's just what you see is what you get, right? And he loves that. Our enemy loves that. He says that he is a, the father of lies, so, right? So he's, he's into deception. He's into subtlety, into stealth. The thing he wants the most is to not be seen and not be heard, right? That's how he sneaks his way into the, into the sheepfold, right? And it says that the shepherd's job is what? To guard his flock from wolves, right? Guard the things that would attack them from the outside. And Andrew's been talking about, you know, shepherds. We've been going through Psalm 23 and, and going through each that line by line, you know, what a shepherd does. But I think it's important to stop and to think about, well, a shepherd's job is also to protect his flock, right? To guard the people of his sheepfold. Once we become Christians, become believers, that means we're not civilians anymore. Now we're soldiers, right? We've been enlisted into this army. It's whether we like it or not. Honestly, Paul, it's interesting that I think Paul looks at this as a fact, right? He doesn't say, okay, well, if you're, there's war going on, if you, you know, need to engage in battle, it notes, no, you have to be strong in the Lord. You have to be strong in his power. You have to put on the armor of God. You have to do these things. It's just a matter of fact for him. You know, he doesn't think about uh, the ifs there, just who it is in the way it is. All right, so let's look at a little bit about this preparation. Um, first thing you have to change in our perspective is, he says, be strong in the Lord, right? So it's where strength comes from. Another word for this is to be stout-hearted, right? Just to have that stoutness of heart. And I think of the, uh, being a, a new army recruit, right? My brother is here today, and he's, uh, he's been in the army. You know, he's a National Guard. He was an MP in the army and stuff. So I think a, a little bit when he was trained, right, when he signed up to, to join the army, what was the first thing that they had him do? Basic training, right? Went to boot camp. First thing you do as a recruit is you're going to go to boot camp. Why? Because they need to, to train you to be strong, not just in body, but in mind as well, right? You have to be strong enough. They're not just going to give you a gun and teach you how to shoot a missile without first telling you, you know, changing your perspective, changing the way that you see yourself, the way that you see your, your brothers and sisters and your unit, right? It's a change of whole perspective. It's a change of, of strength, of, of bodily strength. And when we hear that word, be strong, right? We hear that in our culture today. And we think of, it's, it's kind of like suck it up or man up, you know, as guys, we hear that sometimes where it's just like, all right, you, gotta, you just got to tough it out, right? You got to just be a man and just be strong and, and do that stuff. But that's not the way that Paul is using this. He tells us to be strong. He doesn't mean to be strong in ourselves. He's saying, by the, even though you are weak in yourselves, you can be strong in the Lord, right? That the Lord himself, that God himself is your strength. I think a lot about Joshua, right? When Moses was commissioning Joshua, beginning of Joshua chapter one. And you know what he said to him? He said, be strong, be courageous, be strong, be courageous. He said three times, be strong, be courageous. And I, I know Joshua is probably thinking to himself, like, okay, I gotta be strong, I gotta be strong. Like, I know I gotta do this. But he, he added something at the, the very third time there at the end. And he said, because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He said, that is the source of your strength. It's not that you have to be strong, that you have to toughen yourself up. It says, no, accept your weaknesses. Paul said, I, I boast in my weaknesses. You know, the fact that I am weak is what brings strength. It makes, it shows off God's strength, the fact that I am weak and that I am doing this. So we have to have this perspective of that it's not our own strength, right? Thinking that you're strong enough to wage spiritual war is a dangerous place to be. All right, I think of, again, Peter. Peter's situation when, um, when Jesus was talking to the, his disciples and he said that when I, when I go to the cross, you know, he's foretelling, I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but 
when he says that you guys are going to be scattered, right? You're going you're gonna to flee away and you're going to run when, when persecution comes. And Peter's like, no, Lord, not me. It's like, above all, I will not. These guys might run, but I'm not going to run from you. What did Jesus say? Peter, before the rooster crows, all right, you're going to deny me three times. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Peter's mistake was that he was thinking of strength, of his own strength, thinking of his own resolve, right? He's like, you know, that's how we, and that's how we solve problems. You had that incident with the sword and the ear and all that stuff that Jesus had to fix for him and was like, you know, chill out, bro, like put your sword away. And that's just the way that he thinks. He thinks of an earthly strength, earthly terms, right? That's not how we are to think. That when we go into spiritual war, we go into this spiritual battle. It's not our strength that matters. It's God's strength. And he says, you're strong in the Lord in the power of his might. Right? You think of your might. Um, this word might just means someone's display of strength, right? You see a, real, a guy that's real jacked, real big, and stuff like that. He, you think, like, that guy's pretty strong, right? He must be strong. Um, that's his might that you're looking at. But power is the exercise of that might. You know, if that guy pushed a truck, you'd say, okay, well, that's power, right? That's, that guy is showing off that might, that strength. Okay, so might is like your reserve of strength. So when he says in the power of his might and God's might, God's strength and his reserve is endless, there is no, it's just infinite. It's an infinite reservoir of strength that he has, which gives us great comfort, right? God's strength can never run out. It gives us a sense of, man, not only do I kind of rely on God's strength, but I know his strength is not going to get tired. He's not going to grow weary. I know that in a spiritual battle, he's not going to get tired. He's not going to fall down. But there is also kind of a danger here where we say, okay, well, if I need to rely on the Lord and his strength, right, then I can kind of just sit back. I don't need to do anything, right? I can just kind of let the Lord do his thing, and, and I can just sit. And it's like, no, that's not his intention here. It's not for us to do nothing and for him to do everything. It's not for, certainly not for us to do everything and him to do nothing, right? It's not even that, okay, I'm just going to kind of do everything I can and then let the Lord take care of the rest. No, it's you first rely on his strength, and you rely on what God's reservoir of strength that he has. Then you do it. Then you do the work. It's that knowledge that hey, as I go, and go about and I do this work, right, that I know that God's strength is going to back me up, that I can rely on that. And this strength that God gives us can easily be wasted. It can be sapped away from us, whether that's through sin, whether that's through just getting real busy. You know, we overcommit and get too busy and do too many things, and then it's like, okay, well, we have that strength, but now we sort of got ourselves tired, you know, got ourselves busy and used all, used all of our own strength and, and failed to rely on that strength. Right. We spend too much time arguing, debating, having the wrong fellowship, being unequally yoked, or even in doubt. You know, there's just a lot of things that sap that strength from us that can cause it to be wasted. So our first change in perspective is to be strong in the Lord. Realize that the Lord's strength is what gives us power, something that we can stand in. And then he goes on and he says, to put on the whole armor of God, verse 11, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So it's realizing that not only do we need, you know, do we need and we have God's strength, but also he gives us everything that we need, every piece that we need. He says the whole armor of God is available to us. And I really like how it says the armor of God, right? That means this is God's armor. We don't think of it that way sometimes, but honestly, this is God's personal armor that he's giving us. It's not just, he didn't you know, the blacksmiths of heaven didn't, like, come up with this new suit of armor for us. God used the armor that he wore. It says Isaiah 59, 17, it talks about this. It says that, speaking of God, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate 
and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. We have this picture of God wearing his armor. He wears it to battle, right? So when he says, it's going to give you the armor of God, he says, I'm taking my armor and I am putting it on you, letting you wear it. And that's comforting to me, right? That I have God's armor because how many battles has God lost? None of them. He has never lost a battle. He does not, he's not losing the battle now and he will never lose the battle in the future, right? So that armor will never fail us. There's no doubt that his armor is always effective, right? And he says it's the whole armor of God. It's not just a piece by piece, right? Every piece is essential. It's kind of, again, you went into battle with only part of your equipment, part of the pieces that you needed. You're going to, you might be somewhat effective, but for the, there's a much greater chance that you're going to lose, right? That you're going to lose in that battle because you don't have every piece that you need. You don't have all of the armor. And if we continue in verse 12, all right, so we changed, we have a change of perspective and that we need to be strong. We change the perspective that God gives us this armor, gives us his whole armor. Verse 12 says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the rulers of darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. I would say this is one of the most important parts of this passage, if anything. Our enemies are not flesh and blood, right? Let me say that again. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. This means, what is flesh and blood? It's human, right? If you ever think that someone, a human person is your enemy, you got it wrong. That in the Christian economy, human beings are never going to be our enemy. It says that here. It's always spiritual. The enemies that we have are spiritual. They're not going to be human. They're not going to be of human origin, right? This means your enemy is not a government, your enemy is not a political party. The enemy is not this institution that was created by man. Those are all flesh and blood. Those are fleshly things. I like there's another translation that says, for you are not to wrestle, you are not to wrestle against flesh and blood. It's almost as if to say, wrestling against the flesh and blood is not for you. Right? That God handles that. God will be with you to, to, to handle the flesh and blood. Right? His spirit will work in those people. No, it's the spiritual enemies that we are fighting against. This means we cannot treat people like enemies. Instead, the enemies are the spirits that are deceiving them. Right? We live in a world that is, the majority vastly are deceived, right? They don't know who God is, and they don't believe what the Bible says, and it's because they are deceived. They're people that are under the blindness that the enemy puts on them. So our war is against those spirits. Do we fight on their behalf? Right? Are we standing up for those people? Are we waging war on for those people? 2 Corinthians 10.34 further reiterates this point. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Right? That means that even though we're human, we don't make war like humans do. That our weapons are not carnal, meaning they're not fleshly. They're not of this world. Our weapons are spiritual. Our weapons are from God or of God. And they're used for pulling down strongholds, meaning the places, the strongholds that the enemy has, we pull those down through the power of God. God works through us, works through the way that we wage war. And he pulls down these strongholds. All right, so now that we know our enemies are not flesh and blood, who is the enemy, right? What do the enemies look like? And he kind of lists like a variety of spiritual enemies, right? He's given you um, principalities, powers, rulers of darkness. 
And he sums it all up. These are all spiritual hosts, right? Just basically just evil spirits all summed up together. They all might have all different ranks. They might be in different places, but whatever it is, we just know they're spiritual, right? And I'm going to, I mentioned that, that book, Art of War, earlier, Sun Tzu, right? And um, something he said is actually pretty applicable here. He said, know yourself, know your enemy, and you shall win 100 battles without loss. Right? There's actually a point, he goes further from that, right after that, and he says, you know, if you knew yourself, but not your enemy, you'll probably come out 50-50. You're going to win half your battles, but you're going to lose half of them. Right? If you don't know yourself or your enemy, you will lose all of them, is what he says. Know yourself, know your enemy. We all know that phrase, know thy enemy. We've heard that. We don't even know where it comes from. That's how old it is. Right? So what do we know about them? I'm going to talk about this briefly because this, is a, this can be a dangerous tunnel to go down. It's going to be a bit of a dangerous hole. There are some people that get so concerned about what the enemy is and where he's at, and it's like, oh, oh, that, that thing just fell over? That was, that was Satan. That was the devil, right? This guy just cut me off. Look at that. Look at Satan doing this against me. It's like, okay. <laughs> that person, yeah, no, I'm not going to get into that. I struggle with road rage, so I'm just being vulnerable here. Um, it's, not, it's not so much that we need to get focused and concerned with, like, everything where are the spirits around us? You know, it's just important to know that he's there, though, right? To be aware of this spiritual battle that is going on. So what kind of enemies do we have? Again, we don't want to focus too much what their details of them, but really, what is their position? And Scripture goes through this lot, and I'm just going to kind of list off some of these in Romans 8, 38. It says the principalities can't keep us from God's love. Right, that's the verse where it says that nothing, nor sword, nor death, nor you know, all these things, and he lists principalities, can keep us from the love of God, can separate us from him. It means their power is limited. Right? They don't have power. They're not God. They can't do anything that they want to do. Ephesians 1, in verse 20 and 21, it says, Jesus is enthroned far above all principalities and powers. So Jesus is way above these guys. And I know a lot of our culture, too, we like to look at, um, we kind of look at, God and Satan sometimes as if they're these opposite forces, right? Almost like yin and yang or something like that. Like equal light and equal darkness. And it's like, no, let me tell you, God, Jesus and God are not the opposite of Satan and, and the opposite of the evil spirits, right? They are far above them. They will always be far above them. At no point is it just like this equal pull, right? No, he isn't thrown far above. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says that these principalities will have an end. Right, we know that one day they will be gone, that their power will not be felt in this world, not be seen in this world, right? which means that God has a purpose for them, that God allows them, God even created them for a purpose, for his work to be done. And it's hard for us to see that sometimes, I think. You know, we, we always see bad things that happen. We know that there's evil in this world and stuff happens, you know, and that's a whole other sermon topic about this problem of evil that we have. But... We also see there's great, it's used in a great way, right? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. When Jesus, right? What happened to Jesus on the cross? Was that good or was that bad? It's kind of both, isn't it, right? I mean, it's like, okay, well, it's kind of good for us, right? It's good for us in the sense that it saves us, but that was an evil thing, right? We, humanity murdered the Son of God. Not just an innocent man, but the Son of God. Right? It was an evil thing that happened. However, what did God do? And he turned that around and said, through death, I conquer death. Right? For what you intend for evil, God intends for good. He works everything for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And ultimately, and this is the only important thing, really, that you have to know. 
Colossians 2.15 says that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the principalities and powers. That he brought them to shame. It says he made a public spectacle of them. It's like he just put them out in front of the world and said, look, it's nothing, right? These guys are nothing. They have no, I took away their fangs. They don't have the power they used to have. And ultimately, this means we have victory in what he did. It's not about what we do. Right? Ultimately, it's not that we have to like win, right? That we're this army that's out there and you know, we're trying to gain ground and we're trying to get to the end. It's no. The battle's actually already been won. The war is, has been won. That what Jesus ha- what Jesus did on the cross, that echoes in eternity, outside of time. Right? We see time as it ha- we see these events happening and, and we look and we see like, man, the world's getting worse. But you know what? God sees all and he sees the end of it. It's like in the end, I won. I already won. Right, so what we're fighting now are these skirmishes almost. It's like the after battle, right? Satan's angry. He thrashes around and he's just doing everything he can to make our lives hard and miserable and to pull people along down with him, right? But ultimately, Jesus disarmed all these things on the cross. We have victory in what he did, not in what we do. So our perspective has to be changed. Our perspective has to change into where our strength is, into this whole armor of God that we have, and also about who our enemies really are, right? Their enemies are not flesh and blood humans. There's also another change that has to be made. And this is what I call the change of provisions, right? And I use this word provisions sort of in a, the sense of um, equipment, supplies, right? That God is giving us something to use in this battle. So we go to verse 13, it says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Right? He brings that principle again of the whole armor, right? You equip this whole armor of God that you will be able to stand, which implies without it, we can't stand, right? That we really need this armor. We need God's armor to be able to stand. If we think about this word stand, you know, what, is that, what does that mean? And if you think about it in a battle, in a war, if you tell someone just to stand, it's really a sense of hold the line. It's a defensive position, which might be kind of weird for us in a sense because we're like thinking about, you know, do we have to attack, do we have to advance? That's not what God says. He's not saying I need you to go forward and advance and, and gain the ground, right? He's like, no, just stand, right? You're going to get attacked. Things are going to happen. The enemy's going to come against us, but we have to stand. We have to take up the defenses. So we have to ask, what is, the, what is our reaction? When that, when that attack comes, if we're not standing, what are we doing? Sometimes we run, right? We say, all right, I give up. I'm not going to do this. We might fall into sin. You know, we fall down. We might even kind of slouch as in like we get discouraged. You know, we say, oh, man, this is really tough right now. All these things we do, but it says ultimately we just need to stand. Just stand and hold your ground. And again, it's not, I want to reiterate, it's not a sense of standing in our own strength, right? It's not that I have to stand. I have to be strong. No, God gives us that strength. It is in his strength that we stand. It's in the power of his might. And that power and that might is manifested in this armor that he's given us. And he goes through and he lists all of these pieces of armor, right? And he lists each piece that you need and each piece that he gives us. And each piece represents a different aspect of the Christian life. It's like a different aspect of what we need in order to to fight a spiritual war. And we're going to go through and just kind of talk about each of these pieces and what these things mean. Starting in verse 14, he says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, 
having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. She starts off with the belt, right? Talks about the belt of truth. And, uh, and we kind of think of a belt. You know, it's, we're thinking of, all right, God's going to give us this gear and all this armor and you know, it's going to look really cool. And he's like, all right, starting off, you need to put on the belt. It's like the belt. That's like the most uncool like piece of armor that I could wear. You know, we think of belts are just like I just hold my pants up. It's not a what do belts really do, but the reality is that a belt was actually a very fundamental piece to the, to your armor. Right? Your belt is actually what held everything else together. It was the foundation that you needed above all things. And he says, What is the belt? It is truth. If this is not true, then it is worth nothing. Right? If if our faith is not true. If all of these things we're reading, if this word is not true, then it's meaningless, right? Everything else doesn't really matter. He says, no, you need that foundation to know that the word is true. This word is of God, right? These things that we believe, they are true. It's also like the sense of, you ever heard the expression, we don't use this anymore because it's weird, but to like gird your loins, you know, you hear that kind of thing where it's like, all right, gird yourself up. And it's like, that's what that expression means really is to like put on that belt, get yourself ready. So we think of putting on a belt in the morning, it's because I have to get ready, right? I'm going somewhere, I'm going to do something. So putting on this belt of truth, in a sense, is like I'm getting ready for the battle, right? I'm getting ready, I'm going to put on everything else, but first I need the truth. And this foundation, like even just right here, this foundation is conflicted for the world, right? For a lot of people, it's like, well, what is the truth? And um, this is the one thing the enemy really wants to take away is like, well, none of it's true, right? What if, did God... God said this, but is it really true? Truth is that foundation. Next thing he says is to, to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Right? And again, a breastplate is a pretty important piece of armor. Breastplate is, protects all of your vital organs, your heart, everything that you need to live. Um, so a soldier would definitely not go into battle without that breastplate, without some kind of body armor. And um, it gives them a sense of confidence, right? You can say, hey, I know that when I go out, I'm going to be protected a little bit. I can fight with confidence. Without that, I would be extremely vulnerable. And it says our breastplate is righteousness. And sometimes we think of righteousness, we think of, well, I need to live righteously. Is that what that means? That my, my righteous life is what's going to protect me from attack. It's going to be part of my armor, and it's not that. That's not, that's not what he's trying to say. This righteousness is the righteousness of God, right? Righteousness comes through what Jesus did. And this word righteousness really means it's something that is given to you because of faith and good works, right? It says that Abraham's faith was accounted to him as righteousness. God declared he was righteous. So the way that it works for us now is that Jesus, through his work, has been declared righteous, and he now transfers that righteousness to us. So that means when we stand, we stand in his own righteousness, not in ours, Right? And sometimes we can make the, the mistake of thinking, you know, well, I can stand on my own experience. You know, we might say to the enemy when he comes against us, well, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this for the church, you know, and I've gone on these trips, or I've served in this way and done all this stuff. But that's very shaky ground to be on, right? Because your experiences, your feelings, all these things change. God's righteousness does not change. It will never change. It will always protect you. We stand in righteousness. Next thing is to put on the boots, right? Boots of the gospel of peace. 
you think of boots in, in armor, right? Boots, again, are important. The reason that, probably the reason that like Alexander and some of the Roman Caesars were so successful in their campaigns is that they had better boots than everybody else did. Honestly, that was a huge, a huge advantage for them. Their boots were more like cleats, like they had metal spikes in their boots. It meant that they could move fast, they had good endurance. Um, if some of you guys have, have gone running, if you've played football or soccer, you know the difference that shoes make. Right? If you're just going to go out running, you put on some running shoes, and it's like, oh man, now I'm Usain Bolt, and I can just sprint out of here. You know? Or you put on the cleats, it's you can make cuts. Right? You're agile now. Like you can play to your full extent of your abilities. Well, it's the same with the gospel. These boots are the gospel of peace. Right? They give us a sure footing, a steady foundation, endurance. Right? It's something that we can stand on. But it also is, uh, implies agility and quickness, right? That we have to be quick to share the gospel, quick to make peace, quick to do these things, be prepared, be ready. I like what it says in Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, right? And this is, that's kind of flows really nicely with this verse that the gospel is what, you know, it's beautiful for us to, to run and to share the gospel and to be the bringers of that. To be able to bring the good news, we need the boots. We need to be able to move. We stand in this piece of the gospel. And he also says, putting on, taking the shield of faith. All right, the shield of faith. And I'll tell you what a shield is, right? We, know, we all know what a shield does, and it's very used for defense in battle. But he talks about a shield here. He's not talking about a small, round shield, like a Captain America-looking kind of shield. He's, this is a tower shield that he's talking about. It's a shield that you, know, you would hold it up, and it would cover you from head to toe. It's a full-body shield which is super important for them because in battle, you know, the enemy would usually fire off a volley of arrows. This is the first thing they did when an army, when an army was coming against them. And what all the troops would do is they would hold up that shield, get behind it, and those arrows would just, you know, come and stick to the shield. I know probably half the men in this room are thinking of 300 right now in that whole scene with the let fight in the shade and all that stuff. But, um, yeah, but there's this awesome scene where, you know, they had the whole rain of arrows that came down and they just took it like it was nothing, and they laughed, right? So it's that same idea that this, this shield of faith covers our whole body. And he says they're not just arrows, though. He mentions fire arrows, right? Arrows of fire. And the idea was that a, a, um, in that time, they, when they launched fire arrows, that if that arrow stuck in your shield, it might cause panic, right? That a, a soldier might say, you know, this arrow of fire, like my shield's on fire, and he would be tempted to throw it. Right, to get it away from him because maybe it was burning, and what then? He's open, right? Now open to arrows, open to spear, whatever. Open to attack. He says, but the shield of faith is different. He says the field, shield of faith quenches those arrows. doesn't just take them, puts them out. And the arrows that the enemy throws at us are all kinds of different things. Right? He throws feelings at us. He throws thoughts at us, fears, lies, doubt. These are all arrows that come from the enemy into our lives, things that he attacks us with. And he says, what is the opposite of that? It's faith. Right? Doubt especially. I'd say doubt is one of the, probably the primary tool that the enemy attacks us with. And the opposite of that is, is to have our faith. Ever since the beginning, you think of Adam and Eve, right? The very beginning, the first, the first fall into sin. What did Satan say to, to Eve and then to Adam? Did God really say that if you did this, that something would happen? Surely you're not going to die, right? You might have said that, but no, you're not really going to die. What was he doing? Causing them to doubt God's word, God's truthfulness, God's faithfulness. 
does the same thing with us, right? He says, did God really say this? Did God really speak this promise over your life? Is God really going to take care of you, right? If you go out and you put yourself out there, is God really going to be there? Is he going to show up? Is God really going to help you stand? Is he going to sustain you, right? Doubt is just the thing that we struggle with probably the most, and faith is what we need to, to counteract that. You know, having that faith that is unshakable, that says, you know, God will always, God has been faithful, right? He's always fulfilled his promises. There is not one promise that God has broken. There's not any prophecy up to this point that has not been fulfilled, right? Prophecy of Christ, prophecy of all those other things. God has always been faithful. He says next to take up that helmet of salvation. So again, you know what a helmet is, right? Helmet's Pretty essential, again, to the body armor of God, the body armor of the soldier. Um, your head was a very vulnerable place. You know, if you took a shot to the head, you either would be dead or you're just incapacitated, right? You needed a helmet. I really like what Paul says in First Thessalonians 5. And he talks about this helmet. He says, I want you to put on the hope of salvation as a helmet, right? And he really is saying it's the hope is what you are putting on, the hope of that salvation. Because salvation is something, you know, we use that phrase a lot, like I'm, I'm saved, but it's kind of, it's not totally accurate. It's, it's more like we're being saved right now. Salvation is the thing that comes at the end when God finally brings us into his kingdom. It's like, then we can say, I have been saved. So it's the hope, right? When we declare Jesus as Lord and we invite him into our lives, we say, you know, I am relying on that hope that what you said is true, right? I have that hope of salvation and hope protects us from what? Discouragement, right? That Satan's going to use this He's going to use this desire and put this desire in us to want to give up, to want to say, I can't do this. You know, it's the spiritual attacks like are just too much. And it's like, no, but you have hope that one day you will be saved, that God is even saving you now, right? And the cool thing about a helmet is that it's also like, you know, it has eye holes so you can see through it, right? So it's also this visor. It's something that you look through. So he's saying salvation is what you look through. It's what you, how you see the world. It, is your, it impacts your worldview, Right? The helmet is something that you can see through. And finally, one of the most important pieces, I would say, is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And I like that it says it's the sword of the Spirit, right? So this Holy Spirit is really what is giving us this sword, this weapon. Jesus talked about this in Luke 12, verse 12. He, he told his disciples that at the time when you need it, the Holy Spirit was going to be there to give you the Word. Right? When you stand before kings, when you stand before the judge, whoever, like God, don't worry, the Spirit will come and give you the words that you need at the moment that you need it. It's the same with this weapon, this sword. Right? And we think of the sword as, you know, it is a weapon, but it's not just against spiritual enemies, it's also against us, in a sense. You heard that phrase, a double-edged sword. What does that mean? Right? It's something that is going to affect someone else, but it's also going to affect you. Right? This this sword doesn't just cut into our spiritual enemies, it cuts into us, cuts into our heart. We read the word, we read the gospel, we read what God says. It causes us to evaluate who we are and what we're doing. It's also used for us. And in the ancient world, you know, a, a swordsman would practice his craft, he would practice using a sword over and over and over and over again, right? He would practice the same thrusts, the same slashes, the pivots, the spins, whatever he needed. And you just practice, you would spar, and do this all, like, over and over every day they would practice. Why? Why did they practice so much? To build up muscle memory, right? 
so that when they went into battle, that when they didn't have to think, it was just instinct. Right? That what the, the, the move they needed at the right time would just come out. They didn't have to think about it because honestly, in, in battle, if you, the more you hesitate, the worse your chances of survival are. Right? They needed to be able, they didn't have to, time to think, they just needed to, to act. So they would practice again and again and again. It's the same thing with our sword, the spirit, sword of the spirit, the word of God. We practice, we read, we memorize, we meditate on scripture so that moment that comes when the enemy comes, we can just, don't have to think about it. This is what God's word says. I can parry that, right? I can cut that down because I know what the word says. There's no doubt in my mind. It just comes out. I really like the picture, I think the prime example of this is Jesus himself when he's in the desert being tempted by, by Satan, right? He was tempted three times. What did he do all three times? Quote a scripture. Immediately just came out. And so I have this picture in my head of Jesus and Satan like sword fighting in the desert. You know, that's what that really was looking like. It was a spiritual battle going on. And then even Satan then, and what did he do? He changed tactics a little bit and he was like, I'm going to use God's word. I'm going to try to use this weapon myself and use it against Jesus. And Jesus said, no, I know. I know my word, right? I know my father. That's not going to work, right? He was able to counteract him with scripture every time. It's interesting that you know that all three of those uh, verses that he quoted were actually from Deuteronomy, which kind of tells us that maybe Jesus was meditating on that during his time in the desert. He's thinking about Deuteronomy, thinking about God's law, meditating on his word. So at the time when the enemy comes, he was ready. He was able to counteract with that. It needs to be the same with us. We have to be adept at using this sword. We have to know how to do this. We, we can't stand. We won't be able to stand against attack if we don't know the word. Don't commit it to memory so that it's not just muscle memory, but spiritual memory, mental memory, right? Needs to come out. Okay, so we've talked about what the preparation is, right? This preparation causes us to change perspective. We need to change sort of our provisions, our equipment, things that we're using. And this has all been for preparation, right? This is all just God preparing us for battle. And I think a lot of us can kind of stop there. You know, we just devote our time and devote our lives, and we say, okay, I'm going to build up all these things. I'm going to build up my knowledge of these things. I'm going to build up my, um, my aptitude of the word and build up how, how skillful I can use it. But he says, all right, well, I'm building it up for a reason, right? That's to go into battle. And battle's that next phase. After preparation comes the battle. If you think about it, I mean, what good would be all the preparation? What good would be building up all this, this training if we're not going to use it, right? It's kind of like training for a marathon and then not, not running, right? Not running the race. It's like souping up your car. When I was a kid, they used to call it pimping a ride. I don't know if they say that these days. But, um, you know, fixing up your car. And, you know, what if you did all that stuff and you don't drive it, right? You don't do anything with it. It's like, what's the purpose of doing all this stuff? We need to go into battle. And to go into battle requires another change. There's a change, I like to say, a change of posture, right? We've talked about standing, but this posture is really about kneeling, in a sense. What's the next thing that he says? In verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains and that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. 
So how do we fight? What do we do? It's like, all right, I'm ready. I'm all souped up. I'm ready to go. I need to engage in battle. I need to pray. We fight through prayer. And now for some of us, it kind of seems a little bit, I mean, if we're going to be honest, right, there's a part of us that might seem a little anticlimactic. It's like we're talking about, like, fighting. We're talking about, you know, we have this picture now in our head of Braveheart and, like, I'm this dude that's got the body pain and, like, I'm, you know, I'm the guy in 300 with all the armor and stuff and it's like I'm ready to go and it's like, all right, pray. And that seems to us to be a little bit, like, it's mellow or something, you know? Like, it's not that exciting or something like that. How far from the truth that is, right? This is the, the primary way, the only way that we engage in combat. I'll say this, that if we, we can be perfect in everything. We can, if we were to perfect, you know, this, I mean, our worship team is amazing, right? I just want to throw that out there, but we could perfect, we could all have like Josh Groban level voices and like, you know, the crazy instruments and like just everything could be absolutely perfect. You could have this perfect worship experience that you, when you came in here. We can have these chairs lined up perfectly, the drapes completely centered with the back windows or whatever, and we can have the perfect lighting. We could have the sound can be on point, right? Every transition can go off without a hitch. We can even have Pastor Andrew or myself or whoever, a guest speaker up here, we can preach this amazing, funny, entertaining sermon, right? Everything could be perfect. But if it's not backed up by prayer, it is a form of godliness, right? That is not, doesn't have real power behind it. And I, wanna, I just want to emphasize this point because it's, I think we miss this. We do all these things, we perfect everything. It's like telling God, you know, all right, I got all this. Like, I, I've got all the training. I've got everything I need, but I don't need you now. I can take it from here. Thanks for training me. Thanks for giving me the armor. Thanks for giving me all you need, right? But now I got it. When we lack prayer, if we are prayerless church, prayerless Christians, that's what we are saying, that we do not need God's help now. We have to be a church of prayer because we desperately need God's help. I just think even, it's kind of, it's not, it's all churches, I think, kind of struggle with this in our modern day, right? We lack prayer meetings, right? That's, that's like a lost art that used to happen. Right? There used to be like weekly meetings that, that churches would go to and they would pray, right? People used to come up and pray. People used to always be gathering and praying in their homes. And, you know, and I'm sure, like, we have people that pray. And I know that there's guys that you guys pray. I know there's guys out there that pray. I'm not saying that, like, no one prays and we're just totally in rebellion or something like that, but it's just, do we pray enough? How much are we trying to rely on on the Spirit of God and on who God is versus our own strength? We do that through prayer. I think in our world, our culture today, we insulate ourselves, right? We don't want to be vulnerable to people. I even just think of at the end of our services, right? People can come up to pray. Do we see that a whole lot? Like who's really coming up to get prayer, to be vulnerable, to say, hey, I need prayer in my life for this because I can't do this myself. I need help, right? I need God's help. I need you to pray for me. And we know that God wants to hear from us. We know he desperately wants to talk to us, right? There's so many verses. First Thessalonians 5 is where it says to pray without ceasing. Pray continuously, always giving thanks. First John 5 that says that we have confidence that if we pray in his will, he hears us. Pray according to God's will and according to his name. He will always hear us. 
John 14, this is amazing. Jesus said, ask anything in my name and I will do it for you. Key phrase being in my name, right? And in my will, according to his will. So why don't we pray more? Do we doubt God's word? Do we doubt that he listens? Do we, do we wonder that he hears us? I mean, a lot of us struggle with that. I struggle with that sometimes. Like I've been praying and praying for this thing and I don't see it, right? Is God really listening? We know in James 5, 16, it says this, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, right? Now, again, righteousness, sometimes we read that verse, I think, and we think, well, I'm not a righteous man. I'm not a righteous woman, right? So does that apply to me? But what did we talk about earlier? It's not our righteousness. Jesus transferred his righteousness to us. So when you pray, yeah, you pray as a righteous person, right? It will avail much. Whole revivals, Start with prayer. You know, I think sometimes we think about, well, what does prayer really do? You know what I mean? Am I, when I pray, like I know that God knows all things, sees all things, has planned all things, right? So am I, is my prayers going to change God's mind? Am I going to affect something really? I mean, and that's a whole matter of debate, right, about what changing God's mind and, and it's a whole other sermon about the predestination and all that kind of stuff. So I get too much into that. But I do know for sure that prayer works and that it is effective, right? In our own culture, in our own history of our country, the Great Awakenings, first and the second Great Awakenings, which has happened through the West, not just America and Britain, you know, all over Europe. These things, and they, they tried to go back and to see what caused this to happen. We want this to happen again. We want this revival to happen again. What causes this? And they said it started with prayer meetings. It started with just a church getting together and say, we're gonna pray for our country. We're gonna pray for our people. We're gonna pray for people to know God. There's someone that, uh, you know, Pastor Andrew quotes this guy a lot. I quote him sometimes a lot as well. He's just an amazing author, right? You've all heard of uh, Charles Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, right? Um, a titan of Christian work. And I used to call him the walking revival. They just said wherever Spurgeon went, it just seemed like the Spirit of God just flowed out, right? And people were coming to Christ and coming to know who Jesus is. And so people asked him, they said, what is the secret? Like, what's how did you get to this point? All right, what, what gives you this power? You know what he said? He said, my people pray for me. Right, and he could have given a lot of answers there. He could have said, well, I spend this many hours in, in study of the scripture. You know, I've got this degree. I've done all these things, and I've, you know, I pray myself, like, I don't know, 10 hours a day or something like that. I just don't sleep. I just pray all the time. No, that's not what he said. He said, my people pray for me. I read a book called uh, The Kneeling Christian recently, and we actually read it a while ago for, uh, as part of ICON when I was in the ICON team, and our team decided to read that book together. And it's uh, just about, it's about prayer, a book about prayer, and the author is anonymous. Um, he didn't want to be known, but he said one of the things that really impacted him, he was in seminary and said that um, he met a missionary man that was very influential, very famous, that came to talk to them and speak to them. And at the time, the author, he said he was a guy that prayed, you know, prayer was his thing. Like, he, he felt like, you know, God put it on his heart to pray. And he would pray for, like, he said, an hour every day. You know, in the mornings, he would get up and pray. And he talked to this missionary, and he said, so, you know, what's the key? It's like, what are you, what are you praying, or how are you praying? And he says, I pray. So, honestly, I feel like I can't, not, I can't be effective whatsoever if I don't pray for at least four hours a day. The author was like, I said that just blew his mind. It opened his mind to just, whoa. I thought I prayed a lot. I thought my friends prayed a lot. Four hours a day is just like, 
he said, that's like the minimum for him. He's like, if I could go longer, I would. But it's like, I don't have the time. And I know what we're thinking. Okay, I can't pray for four hours a day, right? Um, a lot of us just don't have that kind of time. And I would en- encourage us too, just that this is not meant to be a guilt trip of I'm not praying enough or long enough. And let me tell you that God sees your life, right? God knows what you're, what you're going through, what you're doing. Like he sees the moms that are spending you know, all their time like with their kids and just trying to just trying to get through the day and survive, right? You know, he sees the the people that are working a lot and that are just, you know, trying to make ends meet and, and it's just he's like he sees that. He doesn't judge you. He doesn't come down on you. He's not a harsh father. Right? He doesn't come down and say, Hey, you don't pray enough. You know, adding to your exasperations. So don't think that way about yourself. But you know what you would love? It's just help me. Just pray that. Say, God, help me. Help me get through this right now, through this time. All right? God loves to hear prayers like that, prayers that are simple. So prayer is how we engage in combat. That's how we can actually wage war and, make, and, and wage battle against their spiritual enemies. And uh, We're so, I feel like we're very troubled by the conflicts in our world. You know, a lot of us are just feel this sense of, man, the world's getting, like, worse Right? We look at our country, we look at our, even just our community, and we look at the world over and just sense this. There's a spiritual darkness there, right? There is evil in this world. We see it all the time. But are we waging war on their behalf? Think of it that way. I've, I said this earlier that we know that it's not just them. They're not our enemies. These people are made of flesh and blood, right? And they are not the enemy. But it's the spirit that deceives them that is the enemy. So do we fight on their behalf? Do we wage war for them? Because they don't know. They don't see it. Right? They're, they're blind. Leading the blind, they're in the dark, shuffling around. But we, we have this light. We can see. We know what's happening to them. So we need to pray for them. Show that we love them. And it's even been kind of a, top, a hot topic lately, a little bit, about um, thoughts and prayers, right? And I remember, I think it was after the, um, the tragic shooting that happened in Douglas. I think that people were saying, we're going to pray. And the world kind of reacted to that. It said, thoughts and prayers. We don't need thoughts and prayers right now, right? We need action. We need this. We need this. Now, there's a, a seed of truth in that, right? And that James talks about faith without works is dead, right? To pray without action, I would say your prayer not fully, has not fully manifested then, has not full, fully grown, has not budded, has not borne fruit. Right, we need to follow it up with action. But believe me, that was an attack from the enemy, for sure, to say that prayers and thoughts are, are worthless. No, prayers are extremely powerful, and we need to keep praying. And maybe it's even like within the church. Other things, you know, a lot of us come from different churches, or this is our first church, or, you know, different experiences, but there's been things in churches that we don't like sometimes, right? Even maybe in our church, if you see something that you don't like, have you prayed for that? Have we prayed for that thing and said, God, I want you to either, you know, mold this and bless this church, let your spirit be heard here, or, or even use me to, to fill in the gap, right, that I see, to use me in this place. And sometimes it's about how we pray, right? Are we praying out of a sense of obligation? Is it like, all right, I have this list of prayer requests, I got to get through it. You guys can go ahead and come out. You're good. <laughs> um, you know, we have this sense of, like, obligation of getting through this list sometimes where it's, you know, I just need to get through it. I, it's, it's just something I have to do, right? It's just on a, another 
check I have to check off on my list. We can't be praying that way. We have to pray as if it is our only hope, right? Pray out of a sense of desperation, knowing that God and can will, will answer, right? And the Spirit says that he makes intercession. The Holy Spirit will intercede for us, that as you pray, he will pray for you, he will speak for you. I ask, what's the last time that we wrestled in prayer? When's the last time that you, you know, were troubled by something and you just said, I feel God's spirit in, like in, this, in this matter, I need to pray, right? And we just went and we wrestled, we just got on our knees before God and said, what, what's going on? What can I do? When were you last totally just honest before God? Right? He sees everything. He sees everything in our hearts. He sees everything going on. So there's no use to hide something. There's no use to kind of pretend it's not there. No, the best thing is just to be open and honest. I kind of like the way that Paul ends this, right? After he teaches them how to prepare for this, this battle, tells them what God has given them, tells them how to wage the battle, he says to pray. Pray at all times, pray on every occasion. And he asks, after teaching them, that's what you have to do. And when he just says, what does he say? And for me, so pray for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Where right? he says, I want you, I taught you what to do and how to wage this battle. So now I want you to pray and pray for me. What does this say? He said, pray for not just him, but all saints. We really need to be praying for each other, right? That in a battle, we are soldiers that are in a unit, right? Soldiers protect each other. Our units are like family to them, they're brothers to them. But we literally are brothers and sisters, fathers, sons, daughters, all those things. We are family. So we need to pray like we're family. That doesn't mean we can't pray for ourselves. No, we must pray for ourselves, for sure. We have to always lift up what our needs. God says, I want you to bring everything to me, right? Bring all of your needs before me. But we just want to make sure it's not only about us and not only about our own motives and about what's going on with us. It needs to be about each other to really care for one another. And Paul is their leader, right? Just like their pastor. Do you pray for the pastors? Right? Do we pray for Pastor Andrew? I mean, I'll take that a step further. Do you pray for Brittany? Do you pray for their kids? I think about the enemy is a uh, he's not stupid right and he's merciless so if he sees a strong spiritual leader he's not you know he goes after that strong spiritual leader and he's going to say man it's hard to get to this guy right this guy knows his word and he's he's strong in the Lord in his power he says but you know what I'm going to do I'll go for his wife I'll go for his kids we have to pray for each other. We have to pray for each other's weaknesses, each other's blind spots. Pray for the things that matter and just pray. Sometimes we lack imagination a little bit when we pray too. You know, we think we've kind of run out of things to pray, but there's things always to pray for. Right? There's always battle going on. There's always things going on. Pray for these things.